In this video, we're going to extend the portfolio theory of Markowitz and look at the expected returns and risk, not at the portfolio level, as we did with Markowitz, but at the firm level. Under Markowitz's theory, we saw that all investors, regardless of their risk aversion levels, would choose to invest in some combination of the optimal portfolio M and T-bills. This is what we call two-fund separation. All investors maximize their utility by investing somewhere along this red line, the combination of T-bills and the optimal portfolio. We called this line the capital market line. And one of the key results for Markowitz is that there is a linear relation between expected portfolio returns and risk when there is a risk-free asset in the economy. That's the relation that's given by the capital market line. What we're going to focus on today in class is whether there is a corresponding relationship between risk and expected returns for individual stocks. And if so, then what is the appropriate measure of risk for individual stocks? The total risk of a stock, or indeed any asset, is measured by the variance or the standard deviation of the stock's returns. But total risk can be divided into two categories. Market-wide risk, which is sometimes called systematic risk, and firm-specific risk, which is sometimes called unique risk. Market-wide risk would include unemployment, interest rates, natural disasters, whereas a lawsuit against a firm would be an example of a firm-specific risk. Bugs in the codes of a computer company would also be a firm-specific risk. The question is, which of these risks matter? Or do all of these risks matter? Scott has $5,000 to invest, and he chooses to invest only in Merck a pharmaceutical company. What are the risks that Scott faces? Well, Scott's got market risk. Interest rates may rise or fall. Unemployment may increase or decrease. And Scott also has firm-specific risk. Other companies may develop more effective drugs. Merck may face lawsuits from patients. And the US Food and Drug Administration may block new products that Merck's developing. So here we can see there's lots of market risk and firm-specific risk. Now let's consider Rose. And Rose invests in 30 stocks across different industries. But her portfolio has the same level of market risk as Scott's investment in Merck. What risks does Rose face? Well, Rose still has market risk. So if interest rates rise or fall, it will affect Rose's portfolio. Same as if unemployment increases or decreases. However, Rose doesn't have any firm-specific risk. Why not? Well, because she's diversified away the firm-specific risk. She holds 30 different stocks, and they're not all perfectly positively correlated, so there are benefits from diversification. In fact, with about 30 stocks... Studies have shown you can eliminate pretty much all firm-specific risk. 
If one of your 30 stocks performs badly, another one is likely to perform well. So these risks balance out. All that Rose has is market risk. We have Scott who invested only in Merck and we have Rose who invested in 30 stocks. Who should earn higher expected returns? Should Scott be earning higher expected returns? Because he invested in Merck and he's got both market and firm specific risk. So should Scott earn higher expected returns? The answer is no, he shouldn't. Firm specific risk can easily be eliminated. We saw that Rose just held 30 stocks and she completely eliminated firm specific risk. Scott can do the same. So there is no reason why we should compensate Scott for taking firm specific risk. What about market risk? Should you be rewarded for market risk? All stocks are exposed to some extent to market risk. And it's likely to be a function of what industry the stock is in, the size of the stock, and the leverage of the firm. But market risk, but because market risk affects all firms in the economy, we really can't diversify its effect. You might think that you could diversify US market risk by investing overseas. Indeed, this is the main argument for investing overseas. It's to diversify away from the US. But that still leaves us with world market risk. So whatever level you think about, whether it's country or world, we still have market risk and it can't be diversified. So market risk is the only risk that matters. That's the only risk that you should be rewarded for bearing. Sharp, Lintner and Black extended Markowitz's theory to individual firms. So they rely on the same assumptions as Markowitz, but they extend the model to consider individual firms. We're not going to work through the theoretical model as there is a lot of mathematics and it's not necessary for this class. And what Sharp, Lintner and Black show is that the expected return on any stock reflects only the risk that cannot be diversified away. In other words, market risk. What's more, Sharp, Lintner and Black showed us how to measure market risk. The market risk of a stock is going to be measured by the extent to which a stock's return co-moves with the return on the market. So if the market goes up by 1%, how much do we think the stock return is going to go up by? That's a measure of how much the return co-moves with the market. Formally, we call the model of Sharp, Lintner and Black the Capital Asset Pricing Model, or the CAPM. And for any stock, according to the CAPM, expected returns are going to be equal to the risk-free rate, plus beta i, which is the market risk for firm i, times by the expected market risk premium. The beta, or the market risk for stock i, is measured as the covariance between the returns on stock i and returns on the market, divided by the variance of returns on the market. And it tells us, this beta tells us, how much stock I is likely to increase by if the market goes up by 1%.
the expected market risk premium tells us how much we should be rewarded for bearing market risk. Now let's spend a bit more time thinking about this formula for expected returns. Specifically, let's think about beta. Suppose you invest in the market. What's the beta going to be for the market portfolio? Let's think about our formula. Beta M is going to be equal to the covariance between Rm and Rm divided by the variance of Rm. Well, we know that the covariance between the market and the market is equal to the variance of the market. So the beta of the market must be equal to 1. You can reason, you can reason through this without looking at the formula. If the market increases by 1%, how much would you expect the market to go up by? It has to be 1% by definition. So the market beta is always going to be equal to 1. Now suppose you invest in a stock with a beta of 2. Are you going to get more compensation? The answer is yes. Relative to just investing in the market, if you invest in a stock with a beta of 2, you are going to get more compensation because you are bearing more market risk. So your expected returns will be higher. If you invest in a stock with a beta of a half, you're going to earn lower expected returns because you're taking lower levels of market risk. So this model says that the more market risk you take, the higher your expected returns. The CAPM predicts a linear relationship between market risk and expected returns. And this linear relationship is plotted out on what we call the security market line. On the horizontal axis, we've plotted market risk. And on the vertical axis, we've plotted expected returns. And here we have the security market line. The slope of the security market line represents the expected market risk premium. That's how much we get compensated for each unit of market risk that we take on. Now in equilibrium, all stocks should lie on the security market line. Suppose they don't know. Suppose we see a stock here. It's lying above the security market line. It should only be earning expected returns equal to RE, but in fact it's earning expected returns of RH. What would you do as an investor? It's earning higher expected returns than expected according to the CAPM. That would mean you'd want to buy the stock. In fact, all investors would see this and they'd all want to buy the stock. And so what happens? As the price goes up for that stock, the expected return will fall until the expected return is equal to the expected return predicted by the CAPM. So in equilibrium, when there is no incentive to buy or sell stocks, all the stocks will lie on the security market line. 
if you see a stock plotting below the security market line, what does that mean? Well, that means that the stock is earning lower expected returns than predicted by the CAPM. What would you do in this case? Well, all investors would recognize this and they would want to sell or reduce their holdings of this stock. That would mean that the price of the stock would fall and so the expected returns would rise until the expected returns are equal to those predicted by the CAPM at which point investors would no longer want to buy or sell the stock, they just want to hold it, and we would be in equilibrium again. To summarize, at the firm level, the CAPM implies that there is a linear relationship between the expected excess return of a stock and the stock's market risk, or its beta. That's what we've seen here. The more market risk you take, the higher your expected returns. Finally, and importantly, the CAPM shows that investors are only rewarded for taking market risk. You are not rewarded for taking on firm-specific risk because it can be easily diversified. Often you will see people who invest, maybe in the stock of the company that they work for, and they invest tens of thousands of dollars in the stock of that company. That's not a sensible strategy. The CAPM says that you're only going to be rewarded for taking market risk. And yet if you invest an awful lot of money in just one company, that means you're taking a lot of firm specific risk. And you're not rewarded for bearing that risk. You should instead invest in a diversified portfolio and get rid of your firm specific risk. That's everything I want to cover today. In class, we're going to talk in more detail about the CAPM and its implications. See you in class.